Good evening, everybody. It's time to begin our service this evening. I know with the being the night before a holiday, we're a smaller crowd, but it's good to see everybody. Tonight we'll have one song, and then Jerry will have our announcements. Three more songs, and then Rick will have our Devo, and Jim Haney has our closing prayer. That's just, ooh. If you see me turn around, it's because this screen isn't working and I have to do everything tonight, so I'll try not to miss. And Rick had to have a new clicker, so this is going to be a new experience for me, too. I'll just blame Rick. It's Rick's fault. Our first song is number 888, Thank You, Lord. If you will let stand for this song, please. Thank you, Lord. How's Becky? She's okay. Okay. I asked Mother today how they were doing. Good evening, everyone. It's good to see everybody here. The day before Thanksgiving. Is it Happy Thanksgiving or Merry Thanksgiving? (laughs) I guess we've all heard that this week, huh? Say whatever you want. Oh, okay. I'm just happy to be here. Toy drive for Hoops Children's Hospital at Cabell. Unwrapped gifts can be donated through December 17th. Boxes are in the old foyer, I guess the middle auditorium. Just a reminder to parents of our away-from-home college students to get your family picture taken while you have your children home during the holidays. He announced that again Sunday morning. David is still needing teachers for Wednesday night classes. Congregational potluck. This is how this reads. Congregational potluck today. Had to ask. This is following morning services. This comes. I read that and I thought, no, not today. This coming Sunday after morning services, everyone invited, bring plenty of 
leftovers, get rid of all of it. We will return to the auditorium following our meal for the afternoon service at 1. There will be no 4 p.m. service. Service projects at 2 o'clock with Chris. Updates to our prayer list. Sean Maynard, Gail Hewitt's son, upcoming tests to determine cause of tremors that he is having. Kelly Williams, as she continues her radiation treatments, continue to keep Rusty and Kristen, Donna Henning, Diane Foss, and so many others in your prayers also that are on our prayer list. Continue to keep those who have recently lost loved ones in our prayers also. Be sure to pick up the bulletin sheet each week for others mentioned on our prayer list. Several of our congregation are traveling for the holiday. Keep them all in your prayers, please. All of ours made it home. We are very thankful. Prayers for Roger and Diane Duncan. Roger Duncan is Sandy Galloway's brother. Diana Duncan is Hilda's niece. First cousins to me. They have COVID. I didn't know Diana was in the hospital. I asked today. Roger is still at home. Keep them in your prayers. This is Carol, Carol Bragg's daughter, mother's brother that just passed away a few weeks ago. Any other announcements? Yes. Excellent. Excellent. Kelly Williams finished up her treatments today. I wasn't for sure. She didn't have to take as many as she thought at first, did she? Yeah, but there, I thought there was more. I don't know. But anyway, great. That's excellent news. Anybody else? Let's bow before we begin this evening, please. Father, we are thankful for this beautiful day of life that you've given us. We're thankful for your son who came and died for us. We're thankful for the many blessings you've given us. We're thankful for the holiday that we have, that we can stop for a moment and have Thanksgiving and, and look to you for guidance and help in the rest of the year and on throughout our lives. We're thankful for the country in which we live, for the community, and we ask that uh, you help us let our light shine brighter in this community. Go with us through this service. We pray the things we do will be pleasing unto you. Be with Sai as he leads us into singing and Rick as he brings us a lesson. We ask your blessings on our sick and our shut-ins that you watch over them. Be with Diane and Roger and help them with the COVID and be with our others that are sick. We're thankful that Kelly is able to finish her treatments. Bless her and Mike and their family. Watch over us, Father. Forgive us. In thy son's name we pray and amen. Jerry, I'm glad you didn't say let's stand for our first song. <laughs> our next song this evening uh, is number 247. You can't be right before Thanksgiving without singing about the pilgrims. So, 247, here we are but string pilgrims. Here we are but string pilgrims here. Our path is often dim, but to cheer us on our 
next song will be number 975. 975. The other, thank you, Lord. Our last song before we, our lesson this evening, is number 118. 118, count your blessings. When upon life's pillows you are tempest tossed, when you are discouraged taking all his loss, count your Our song of invitation will be number 853. 853, God is so good. Okay. 
That's one reason why I have the remote mic so I can move around and see the screen myself. Sai asked me when I came in. Is this on? Yeah. Sai asked me when I came in. He says, well, do you have your Thanksgiving devotional ready? And I said, uh, yep. And then I put up the title that you'll see in just a minute. And he goes, whoa, that's not a Thanksgiving devotional title. I don't do seasonal sermons or, or devotions. Nothing wrong with them inherently. I just uh, choose to speak on what I want to speak on. Uh, and this isn't uh, maybe what you're thinking. This is not about any aberrant behavior that, that people, any inherent excitement, that joy that people get out of suffering pain. But we, this is a biblical concept. And so we're going to talk tonight about uh, the, the joy of pain. Oh, it does go out. There are two passages uh, that I want to talk about uh, that look at this topic. And here's the first one, James 1, 2 through 4. It's one that you're familiar with. And James says, right at the beginning of his, his letter here to the people reading, he says, Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. He says that these trials, these, these uh, testings of our faith produce in endurance. And they help us be more complete and perfect and lacking in nothing. And he says as a result of that, we should count it as joy. We should be joyful. We should be able to rejoice when we are tested, when we enter various trials and various tribulations. Now I'm thinking he's talking about persecution, suffering for the cause of Christ, not just the things that everyone goes through in this life, the sufferings that we go and the misfortunes that we have in this life. He's talking about suffering for the cause of Christ. And he says, not only does it produce in us when we do endure a more complete Christian, a stronger Christian, but it also is a, is a source of joy for us. The second one, Romans 5, 3 through 5 says, not only this, but we also celebrate. Other versions say exult. Whoopee. We are happy about this. And our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, that brings about proven character, and then proven character allows us to have hope. It produces hope in us. So when we have trials, when we have temptations, when we are tested, when others persecute us, that's the context, the first century context here, that's the progression that we can go through if we persevere. We persevere, that, that strengthens our character, and as a result, we have hope. So, times that are difficult for us, we don't look forward to. But as a Christian, 
if the context is suffering for the cause of Christ, we ought to look forward to those because they produce in us these things and it allows us to revel, to experience joy that we can suffer for the cause of Christ. Remember when Peter and John, right after the establishment of the church, were, uh, were being persecuted, thrown in jail, beaten because they were preaching the gospel. When they got out, they got back to the, to the place where uh, other Christians were gathered and they said they, they were happy, they were joyful that they could suffer, be counted worthy, I think is the phrase, to suffer for the cause of Christ. So this is the good side of what we would normally view as a bad situation. Suffering is no fun for anyone, whether that's physically, socially, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, whatever the situation is. Suffering is not, you know, something that we look forward to. In fact, pain and discomfort are sought are not sought out by rational human beings. We avoid it every chance we get. Pain and discomfort is an entirely human reaction, whether it is mental or physical or whatever the situation might be. So for these inspired writers to tell us to look forward to that, to count it all joy when you can experience that, might mess with our, mess with our heads a little bit. Early Christians, they were subjected to all sorts of social and emotional and psychological and physical pain. They were kicked out of the synagogue. They were thrown out of their family. Uh, Chris has been telling us about that uh, with a study of Hebrews on Sunday morning. They were social outcasts. And that was not even the worst of it. Many of them were put to uh, unbelievable amounts of torture and even death. Many suffered death at the, at the hands of others. Why? Simply because of their faith. Their faith in the fact that Jesus was the Son of God, that he died, was buried, and was resurrected. And they wouldn't deny that, and so as a result, they were persecuted. We know what Paul did. He, people in jail, he went all the way up to Damascus. And we talked about this in in Wednesday night class a few, few weeks ago. Here's Jerusalem and Judea and then Samaria and then Galilee, and then Damascus. Damascus, Syria is way up there, a long way from Jerusalem. So he was going that far to take people, drag them out of their homes, drag them back to Jerusalem, and consenting to some of their deaths. That was before he had his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus. Later, the Romans were even worse than that, and they tortured people unbelievably and put them to horrible horrible deaths. You cannot read accounts from Josephus and other historians at that time that, and, and think how inhumane these people were. And why? It's because of their faith. There wasn't any crime that they had committed. It was because of their faith. Both of these groups made examples of the faithful to discourage others from continuing. They felt like if they could come across hard enough on these that they did capture and punish, that it would discourage the rest of them. Yet, in our passages, James and Paul paint a rather rosy picture, very positive picture of this suffering. 
Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7 to 12, about his, the people he toured around with preaching and probably included in this is the other apostles as well. And he says this, we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed. I wonder what he's perplexed about. Maybe why others wouldn't believe this so that they could undergo the same suffering. He knew why he was suffering, and so he wasn't perplexed about that. We are persecuted, but not, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying around the body of the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who live are constantly being handed over to death. Not a pleasant existence to be a, a first century Christian, especially one of uh, the prominence that, that Paul had and those who were, were going with him, or the prominence that the apostles had. That is not a very positive-sounding picture. But notice what he says a few verses later. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer person is decaying and is daily handed over to death, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction... Does that sound like momentary light affliction up there? By comparison to this, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond anything that compares to that. While we look not at the things which are seen, this physical punishment that we are enduring, but we look at the things that are not seen so that we can have that eternal weight of glory. He was able to take his focus off of everything that was happening to him and to them at that time and focused on the future, focused on heaven, focused on the things that were not seen because he didn't want to focus on the things that were seen because then you can get wrapped up in the suffering that you do. So what is the point? Overcoming trials, tribulations, suffering in this life by focusing on things that are eternal, not those things that are immediately before us. We overcome any temptation that we have here, whether that be sin or whether that be persecution or any type of sacrifice that we have to do here by not focusing on the here and now, by focusing on the reward. You've heard the term more than likely emotional intelligence. And it's a term that came into being, I want to say, back in the 90s. Um, um, William Goldman, I think. Goldman uh, was the guy who came up with the term. And he basically said that if you can take your mind off of what's going on right here, if you can resist doing something here that's going to pay off, in the long run, you have a higher emotional intelligence quotient. You are, em you are better able to handle the disappointments of this life or the current situation so that you can obtain the payoff later on down the line. Some have taken emotional intelligence and, call, and now calling it spiritual intelligence. That we as Christians can suffer 
on this earth. And let me say this. We don't suffer. By comparison to what first century Christians did and underwent, we don't suffer. Things are changing. I think in the future, the next generation is going to have it more difficult than we currently have unless that pendulum comes back. We are headed in a very bad direction right now where we're going to get a chance to see how joyful we can be about the suffering that we undergo. Extremely positive twist on an extremely unappealing aspect of being a Christian. No one likes to suffer. That's unappealing. But there is a positive side to it. We're suffering for the cause of Christ, and we are counted worthy, as Peter and John said, for suffering for the cause of Christ. Not only can we survive it, James and Paul tell us that it produces endurance in us, and it produces proven character, and as a result, we can have hope. That's if we persevere. So what is the other side of that coin? What if we don't? It's all been very positive up until now, but if you think about it, very few of us are successful all the time at resisting temptation to sin. Certainly, we all sin. And if we get into situations where our faith is tested and we don't stand up for the cause of Christ, what happens? What if we're weak? What if we give in to those trials and temptations? If we overcome, we become stronger. But if we fail, what does that do to us? Here is the model or the pattern that I see uh, that, that probably takes place. Jesus called it the way of destruction in the, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. That broad way that many people will follow and it is the path to eternal destruction. Our first sins are likely not those biggies. Murder, adultery, blasphemy, idolatry, etc. Those that the Catholic Church would label mortal big sins. Probably not those. We probably start out with lying, cheating, dishonesty, slandering, gossip. What many of us would say, well, those aren't the, aren't the serious ones. God looks at all sin as sin. He doesn't break it down. But when we start sinning, we just usually don't jump to those, those major ones or those that are the more serious by human standards. We start out small. And most likely... We get away with it. So what does that tell us? We learned that we could sin without consequences, at least not for the moment. And what does that do to us? We learned that we could gain personally by sinning. We gain personal advantage for us. And everyone likes personal advantage. We learn that sinning becomes a habit and maybe even second nature to us. You've heard it said that some people lie when they don't even have to because it's such a habit for them. It was said by one of our nation's leaders and his wife a few, few decades ago that from an inside person says it's, it's not that, that they lie. It's just that they do it so naturally. This is what happens when it becomes second nature to us. When we do it so often, 
that it becomes a habit. We learned that as long as we could get away with the little things, then why not try the big things? It blows my mind when, when you hear of someone being arrested for embezzling money or um, doing something that, you, that they knew they had to know sooner or later they were going to get caught. There was no way that they were going to get away with that. Sooner or later, somebody's going to notice. Money's not going to be there when it should be. And it'll be tracked right back to you. But there's something about the mind that says, I got away with this. I can get away with that. I can get away with that. And so uh, I turned it this way. Small sins become a gateway drug to larger sins. Whatever euphoric sense that we get by getting away with something tells us that maybe we can get away with something bigger. And it's kind of like a gateway drug that satisfies us for a while and then we need something bigger, something stronger, something better to fill that void. And here's the conclusion. Any sense of conscience guiding us has long been hardened by our successes in our sins. Do you have any scars, burns, surgeries, uh, a callus? That skin is different. That skin doesn't have the same sensation that the rest of our skin does. I have a I had surgery, uh, heart surgery when I was 44, and I have a, a scar that runs from here to about here. And it, it, it's not an, quite an inch wide, but it's wide. And when I do that, I can barely feel that. It's a lot different than the feeling here. When we get so scarred and our conscience gets so calloused, that's when sin is ruling our lives. The feeling, if any, is different than the rest of our skin. It loses its sensation and in a way it's dead to normal physical or biological responses. And that is what our conscience becomes when sin after sin after sin deadens our conscience to any rational or spiritual thought or consequences couple of verses talk about this condition. 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2 says this, Some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared, that's that callousness, that's that deadened sensation in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Ephesians 4 says, So I say this and affirm in the Lord, that you are no longer, you are, are to no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their minds, being darkened in their understanding. They, having become callous, have given themselves up to indecent behavior for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So where is your heart? What, what, what is your conscience? It, it, it's that thing inside of you, and we always point right here, that's, that's not the heart we're talking about, it's this heart up here. It's that spiritual discernment that we all should have. It is that probably 
that which God placed in us when he created us. He says, let us make man in our own image. There is something that we are given when we come into this world that is inherently within us that makes us want to obey a superior being. That's at least part of it. I think that's in there somewhere. Romans 2 talks about the Gentiles who did by nature the things that the Jews were omitting in the old law. So even the Gentiles that he just talked about in such negative terms there had this conscience within them. None of our hearts here tonight are that far gone or you wouldn't be here, I am pretty confident. So where is your heart tonight? Is it getting stronger in faith? Are you enduring under trials and temptations? Is your hope in a reward increasing and getting stronger? Or is it decreasing and receding and getting weaker? Do you find yourself unable to resist sin and temptation? Are you concerned about your chances of turning things around? All of us sin. If we have obeyed the gospel, we have an advocate with the Father. We know that he will forgive us if we repent and ask for forgiveness. We have that luxury of knowing that. So when we offend our conscience, when we sin, when we feel bad about what we have done, we can go to him, we can repent and say, I will do my dead level best not to do that again and ask for forgiveness. God loves you and he loves your soul. He sacrificed his son on the cross for you and that's no minor event as we all know. He wants you to succeed. He's ever faithful to forgive you if we will just simply repent and try to do better. You can turn things around. You're not locked into the path that you're on. And you have a chance tonight to make that right. If you've never been baptized, we stand ready and eager to make that happen with you and for you this evening. And if you have been baptized and you, if any of this kind of rings true to you, that you're headed in the wrong direction, that you need to fix things, you can come down front. We will offer a prayer for you, but that's not necessary. You have an advocate with the Father. You can pray to him right now where you are. You can pray later this evening at home in the quiet time by yourself. You can fix that. And you can overcome the sins that beset you. We are told to strive to perfection. The mature Christian does that. Mature Christian experiences that overcoming that is mentioned in those first two passages more often than the one that gives in more often. We have to strive for maturity, and we can start that right now. If you're subject, won't you come as we stand and sing?
us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, again, we thank you that you have given us this privilege to come here and to sing songs of praise unto you, and Father, to hear messages from your word. Father, we just thank you so much, and this tomorrow we celebrate a day of thanksgiving, but so many thanks, things that we have in our life to be thankful for, but the most that we have to be thankful for is the sacrifice of your son Jesus and what he did for us. For without that, Father, we would have no hope of eternal life with you. Father, we just pray that you'll be with all those who are traveling. Pray that you'll give them safety. Just help us to have a good day tomorrow with our families and just give us safety. Bless us each day of our lives, Father. We pray that you'll be with our country and all the turmoil and situations that are that are so bad in this country. We just pray that you'll be with our leaders, be with our law enforcement, our military. Just keep them safe and help them, Father, to do the best job they can. Guide us each day, and when you are finished with us on this earth, give us a home in heaven with you. For we pray in Christ's name, and amen.